Welcome to Sticky Beak, Episode 8, a continuation of the tale of Mark Hunter Vincent. This is Part 2 of our story, Snow Peas and Ashes, brought to you by my new sponsor, JPEX Financial Group in Glastonbury, Connecticut. For investors, families, and retirees looking to map out their financial future, Carol and Jamie run a female-led and staffed office, offering customized strategies and objective advice personally designed to help you reach your objectives, with their personal and distinctive focus always on you. Now is the time to plan your future at www.raymondjames.com backslash Financial. Chapter 3, The Blood and the Buddha, will be released in one week, but it is up right now on my Patreon for immediate access if you pledge $5 a month. Just go to www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. In the meantime, you can get more information on Doreen by joining the Sticky Beaks Facebook group or emailing me at justicefordory at gmail.com. Now on to the show. Walk softly, children. When we last left off, Mark and Donna were over, and she wouldn't spit on him if he were on fire. But there was still little Doreen, not yet five, to think about. Sometimes she got lost in the fray. Here's Mark's brother, Brad. I'm not saying Doreen was a huge part of our lives just because, like I said, this is unfortunate because she was a product of Mark, who, needless to say, was not well-liked. And I'm not saying she suffered, but she probably didn't get everything she should have got in a normal family. So it was very strained. You know, Donna would come over, and I was not there for most of this. I'm just telling you what I know from my family. Donna would come over, and, okay, another one of Mark's, flames at the moment type of thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Especially so young, he knocks up a 15-year-old. He, he should have been put in prison for that right there. He wasn't, so you've brought us back to Doreen, and for that, we are grateful. Mark is doing his usual Mark crap, and so, okay, here's this child, and we all know that, you know, Mark and Donna don't really love each other, and... It was a weird situation, just like all of his other kids. Do you realize that Mark's the only one that has any offspring that will carry on to Vincent name? Paul's a fucked up mess, and uh, Doreen's dead, and it, you know everything that Mark's ever done is a clusterfuck. Doreen was a sweetheart. You know, I, I did. I was gone. I was away from the house, but. You know, she was a sweetheart. She didn't get what she deserved. I'm not talking about her death, but even family stuff. She didn't get what she deserved. Due to Mark's divorce from Donna and his estrangement from his family, there isn't much information available on him in the early 80s. I do know he was arrested and convicted for burning down a bar called the White Horse in White Plains, or maybe Brewster, New York. He'd done it well before he was caught, but the police took a long time to bust him. And while there is no definitive answer for why he would do such a thing, many people seem to remember he got angry at the bar owner for saying something to his girlfriend, who may or may not have been a cocktail waitress. 
I'm actively digging for records on the White Horse Fire and Mark's trial, so stay tuned. Some people I've spoken to believe Mark was also involved in another suspicious fire in 1981. This one occurred at a furniture refinishing business called The Slippery in Danbury, Connecticut. The fire marshal said that blaze was likely set to cover a burglary, but that mystery has never been solved. On June 9, 1984, Mark married Sharon Rockwell, aged 23. He'd met her in his evangelical Christian circles, and the two got together shortly after Mark claimed that Jesus, or maybe the devil, appeared to him in his sleep to tell him that he needed to be with Sharon. The two were supposed to have been married earlier, but when the day itself arrived, so had Doreen to move into her father's house, and the wedding was put on pause. That would be him, because he has a temper and a half, mm-hmm. and she can um, she can push his buttons, I'm sure. Yep. You know, she moved in on his wedding day. I mean, it was just... Yeah, I always forget to get married. Tell me about that again, because I I, I know that story, but I, I I I don't know enough about that story. Well, he had an arranged marriage, and he was supposed to be marrying Sharon that day, and uh, he said it's okay for her to move with her, live with him, and we took her there. What do you mean arranged marriage? Never said a word. Never said a word. He had a he was arranged. It was a religious type thing. Okay. An arranged marriage. He was into the Christian life, you know? So with Sharon, it was an arranged marriage. It wasn't like, you know, they were like chosen. Oh, my God, you know? Okay. So the church, you think the church, like, set them up and told them they were getting married? I don't think he allowed that. But, yeah, that was supposedly the way it went. Okay. Okay. And so the day Doreen moved in, they did get married or they didn't no, get married? No, The wedding was over. That, that didn't happen. Okay. They put the wedding on hold. Because Doreen that was... was what they were in Bridgeport. Because Doreen was coming. Yes. She moved in on the wedding day. It was supposed to be the wedding day. And so how did you find out about that later? Sharon told Donna. She said, oh my gosh. She says, you know, that was supposed to be our wedding day. She just moved in and he just... You know, everything stopped because Doreen, when Doreen came, everything stopped. I mean, he, that was his world. The couple was wed at a small brown church with a white cross above the door. The groom wore a white and brown plaid-collared shirt under a brown vest with gold buttons. The bride sported a frilly white blouse with a high neck and sleeves that reached her wrists, coupled with a floor-length blue skirt dotted with white flowers. In her hand, she clutched a small bouquet of what appears to be blue and white flowers, but which might also be a little pillow, the kind kids might leave under their pillows when they're expecting a visit from the tooth fairy. In photos from the ceremony, the officiant lays his hand on Mark and Sharon's foreheads, and they close their eyes, lost in something resembling prayer. No one can remember whether Doreen was at the wedding, and she's in none of the photos of the event that I have. Doreen's half-brother, Paul, would arrive shortly, then her half-sister, Sarah, about a year later. The family was living in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the time, where a man who was a boy alongside Doreen says Mark tried to choke him for playing tag with the little girl. Sharon and Mark moved to upstate New York at one point. I've never been able to pin down the exact year. And they took Doreen with them. But Doreen would call her mother and her aunts to complain about how strict Mark and Sharon were. So the women drove to New York, took her out of elementary school, and put her on a plane to Florida to live with her grandparents and her cousin Joe. 
As one can imagine, this did not go over well with Mark. She didn't want her to be living there and going to school. I don't know why exactly, you know. Maybe it was the distance or whatever. That I couldn't tell you. But she didn't tell Mark either, right? She just took her and sent her? Yeah. Oh, no. When Mark found out, he was a raving maniac. If he could kill her, he probably would have. Did, oh, yeah, he was really crazy. Do you remember how he found out that she was gone? I don't know. I was here in Florida. I don't know. I don't. Well, he, he called Don, I'm sure. Did he ever call you guys in Florida? No. No. He never spoke with me. Okay. No, he never spoke to me. Not after the divorce. I had no part of that man. Of course, he wouldn't come to Florida because that's too expensive. So that's why Donna sent her here to me because she knew he wouldn't go there. Okay. He, he just wouldn't do that. Because of why he went everywhere else. I guess why he wouldn't do that. I was gonna say, so it was like more of a money thing than because it sounds like he would have followed Doreen to the ends of the earth if he could have. Uh, he probably would have, but if he didn't have the money, he can't go. You know. Despite hearing talk of Mark always flaunting what he had, he never seemed to have much, or at least not anything he earned himself. I asked Doreen's Aunt Carol about this. It strikes me, and tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think Mark ever had, like, two nickels to rub together. He never did. No, he acted like he had millions all the time, but he didn't have nothing. Okay. He never had anything. He used to always spend everything he had. I mean, one day, he pulled up, and we were like, what the hell? He pulls up and it's beautiful. I mean, custom everything. It was amazing, the car. It was a Corvette. It wasn't shit, you know? It's like, where the hell did you get that? You know, you're talking how many years ago? It was, mm-hmm. or it might have been maybe five yeah, or six. I mean, it was, she was little. It was like, where the hell did you get this damn thing, you know? I mean, he used to work five jobs. That's all he ever did. He never really worked a real job that I know of. Mm-hmm. A lot of carpentry work for the richer people, you know? Doreen didn't fit in in Florida either, and she eventually returned to her father setting the stage for the move to Wallingford right as Doreen ended her seventh grade year. Things went to hell in a handbasket shortly after the family arrived at the Whirlwind Hill house on June 4, 1988. It was from that house that neighbor Jimmy Piscotti heard yelling, and it was in that driveway where Mark would burn Doreen's scrapbook and her diary just days before she vanished forever. Here's Mark's Whirlwind Hill landlord, Jimmy Farnham, who remembers the girl well, but not her dad. We saw that you had rented it out to the Vincents, to Mark and Sharon. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't 100% remember his name even, but he was a guy who worked on our house as a, as a carpenter for uh, Frank's Paint in New Haven, Frank IML. Okay. I think he's retired. I don't, did you hear of that? <clears throat> no, that's new to me. So he was, he was like this born-again Christian guy who was like totally spouting, you know, always talking about Christ and... Very, uh, and we had to move into New Haven, so we rented it out to him because he'd worked on the house. We did a renovation of it. Okay. And then um, things uh, got super dark. He basically went back into his old life. Of uh, We'd heard that he was a drug dealer, and he basically, you know, left his wife, and they, I think they had a baby. Uh, yeah, they had two. Yeah, two ba- Yeah, and, then, and, and the daughter was his daughter by a, a prior marriage, I think. And she was very spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was at 13 or 14. She was, I, I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very, she reminded me of uh, the, the young uh, uh, daughter in Beetlejuice. I mean, she was, she was always wearing black and very black hair, very pretty, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like oppositional. Okay. I think 
some troubles with her discipline-wise, but then you know, she disappeared. But I always thought she ran away. Did you have an opportunity to speak to him about that? To him? Yeah. You know, I don't even remember if I ever did talk to him. No, because I think he'd already left the property and his wife was there. She was um, going on welfare and she couldn't pay the rent and then she finally moved out Okay. after a few months. But she uh, was all very sad. Farnham was much clearer on other things, including how Mark found that house all the way out in the farmlands of Wallingford. Farnham, a gentleman farmer whose family has been Yale-educated going back generations, had met Mark before, when Mark had done carpentry work at Farnham's main house in New Haven. It seems like Frank introduced the two of them, but I can't be sure. Farnham was clear, however, that Mark was renting the house for cash and not in exchange for any carpentry or other labor. Do you mind if I ask if he was paying you with work or was he paying you with, with money? No, they were, they were paying cash. Paying cash. Did he ever make... I mean, it was a low rent. Well, you know, it was like $600 a month for a whole house, is my recollection. Even, even then, that was low. But you know, as I said, he got familiar with the house because he worked on it before he moved in. And then he said, hey, he approached us, say, hey, I need a place to live. Could I live there? So. And what did you say the painter's name was? Frank? Frank I-M-L. I-A, I think it's I-A-M-E-L-E. He, he had a hardware store in the hill. Okay. And it closed years ago. But he was a really nice guy. He was, it was right near uh, on Howard Avenue. Okay. All right, I'll be able to look that up. And did do you remember if he did any renovations to the house or any improvements to the house while you were what renting to him? There? No, not that I remember. Are you thinking of what might be in the walls, you mean? Uh, well, it's funny that you say that because the day that the mother, Doreen's mother and her aunt came to pick her up, they said he was constructing a concrete patio or some sort of concrete in the front of the house. Huh. Weird. Like pouring concrete? pouring concrete and he had um like it was roped off and they couldn't get around it so they had to go through the side door huh. the people in that house use the side door more than the front door is not really used the side door is the kitchen is the main door for people coming in and out so so the side door is that the door facing the road when you drive past the house uh no there's a door that faces the road is the front door okay into a like a old formal hallway and then there's a side door with a porch that i built on the side, um, to the, if you face the house on the right side. Okay. When I lived there, I was trying to create a passive solar porch. So the, the whole porch is, you might have noticed, has all glass. And then we had, we had actually poured, the, the porch had been just a wooden porch, and we created a stone porch, filled it with rocks, put in piping, and, and put concrete over it. That was well before he was there, so I don't... I don't, I don't remember seeing any concrete work that he ever did. Okay. Farnham's memory got fuzzy again when I asked if he recalled the workshop Mark said he retreated to after the fight with Doreen. He said at one point that he was in a workshop. Is there a workshop associated with the house? Um, geez, just trying to blank. There's a, there was a garage <laughs> across the street, but it got torn down, but I'm not sure when it was torn down. Okay. It had a shop in it. Okay. And that was... That's where Gouveia was, or is now, right? Yeah, across the street, Gouveia owns now, but there was a, a like a four-bay garage that my father had used as his shop for okay. the farm, and that was there for years, but I just don't remember when it was torn down. So here we are on the day in question, the day Doreen disappeared. Although I still hold out that Doreen actually vanished on the 12th or closer to it, Mark insists it's June 15th, 1988. Mark also tells a vastly different story from Sharon, with many of their details being mutually exclusive. 
For now, let's stick with Mark's account, which has him becoming angry with Doreen in the afternoon and paddling her in her bedroom. Her screams were so loud, Mark would tell the Wallingford WPD in 1989, that Sharon had to take Sarah and Paul out of the house to get away from it. During the fight, Mark said he'd push Doreen, causing her to back up into a bedroom window and break it. That night, the sun set in Wallingford at 8.27 p.m., about a half hour before Mark claims to have seen his daughter for the last time at 9 p.m., standing in the house's kitchen before he went to his workshop across the road. He claimed that when he made his way back to the house, across the road, in the darkness, the front door was standing wide open. Despite my promises to myself that I wouldn't editorialize, this story makes no sense. The moon that night was a waxing crescent, which means there was only a thumbnail sliver of light illuminating the farmlands. Even in a little moonlight, Mark would have been directly across from the front door, and an escaping Doreen would have sprung out right in front of him. Let's also not forget that the house's front door, which had been long abandoned by those who lived there for the side door, was bolted from the inside, with only Mark and Sharon possessing keys. Even if Doreen had found a way to get past that obstacle, the house was built in 1900, and I would assume there would have been some kind of thud as the ancient lock swung back, some creak as the door opened. But Mark says he didn't hear a peep. So now, according to his story, Mark had three days to wait, until June 18, 1988, until Donna showed up to collect her daughter. In the meantime, he'd taken the phone off the wall, telling Sharon he didn't want Donna to bother them, and took off in his truck for hours on end. His story to Sharon that he was out looking for Doreen doesn't make any sense, because he never even went to Donna's. The record is not clear who Donna had with her when she went to pick up Doreen on the 18th. It was a Saturday. Investigator Rick Novia's notes indicate that she brought her boyfriend at the time, Mark Lestage, but her sister Carol insists she was there that day. We went there, we pulled up. Mark comes to the car window and he says, where is she? Donna said, what are you talking about? She says, don't you have her? She said, are you kidding? She said, stop fooling around, where the hell is she? And he said, um... He said, don't you, you have him. Why, what are, you, what are you talking about? So that was a conversation. And then Don was like, did you call the police? What are you talking about? What are, you're, what are you, nuts? You didn't call the police? And oh, she just was mad, very mad. It was crazy. And he's just sitting there, you know, comes over the car like nothing happened. I asked Carol to walk me through the scene. No, but I just go up there the first day because I know we went in the house. Oh, that was freaky. We did go in the house. We went up to her room. Bedside was off the bed. She had a rainbow bedspread. That wasn't there. The curtains were up. There was a ladder over by her window to her bedroom. Mm -hmm. And there was no Doreen. I mean, we looked in the closet. I don't know. And I, to be honest, everything else was like a blur. It was horrible, though. Oh, I'm sure. You don't forget, though. It's just like, wow. What do you remember about the concrete? There was concrete being poured. He was building a porch. He was building a porch. house. Okay. An addition. Like an addition. Mm-hmm. And it was concrete, and we couldn't go in that door. We had to go in a different door. We went into a different door the first time, and then we went in this door. I must have been the second time. I don't remember. A long time ago. But I know it's a concrete, and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
Where the ladder was with her bedroom, that's one door, right? The side door? Her bedroom was upstairs. We had to go upstairs. So that was, I think, on the side of the house. So if you're facing, if you're on the street, there's one front door, and then there's the side door where you pull into the driveway, and that's, I would call that the side door. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we pulled into the driveway, and that's where the concrete was. A porch, something, it was a porch of some sort. Did he mention, I'm, I'm building a porch? Did he say anything about the concrete at all to you? No, he didn't say anything. He just kind of knew what was going on. I mean, you're concentrating on one thing. Right, right, of course. Okay. Uh, you know, what's going on? The window was broken? Our window looked like there was a hole in it. There was a hole in the window, like a, I don't know if it was a bullet. It looked like a, it was perfectly round. After Mark and Donna had spoken to the police and Donna was gone, Mark did go see his mother and family friend Georgia Lewis down in Bethel and Redding, but neglected to mention that his daughter was gone. Lori knew because Donna had told her and tried to play detective, offering Mark snow peas from her garden, Doreen's favorite, to take home to his daughter. Mark didn't flinch. Joe said before that he had heard that the snap peas thing was about she was trying to bait him into saying something. Right. Yeah, because you had talked to her. Because you called her and I you did. told her, do I not did. tell him I talked to you. He, she yeah. said she wouldn't say anything. She didn't. She didn't. She was pretty good. And she even called her back and told her. Yeah, he knows right. something. How long after she was missing was that? It was, an, it was four days. days. Yeah. Four and days. you said, don't say anything. And she didn't. Why do you think she didn't say anything? Because she watched his body movement. She, she baited him right? to did say. She call you back? you know, that Doreen was missing and he never told her. And when she called back, she said, he knows. That was the first thing she said. He knows where she is. He's not worried about anything at all because he knows. His own mother said that. His mother said he knows where she is. She said, I watched his body movements, his muscles, his face. I baited him. Nothing. Yeah, she said he knows where she is. I watched his mother. She said he knows what happened to her. He knows, and he's not worried about anything. He knows. And that was um, Father's Day. That was Father's Day because it was... um Georgia, too. We never 40, it. Yeah, in Georgia, yeah, too. We went to Georgia's The house. same day. You guys went to Georgia's house? house. First time I ever saw her, Georgia. Yeah. We went to her house, and yeah, and we talked to her. How'd she strike you, Carol? Georgia? Yeah. Concerned. She looked concerned. One day that summer, concerned that the police weren't doing enough, Donna and her sisters journeyed to Wallingford with homemade missing posters. Doreen's little sister, Stephanie, was along for the ride. As the women sat in their car in the center of town, deciding where the posters would get the most exposure, Mark was suddenly there. He sneaked up on the car, suddenly sticking his head through the sunroof to mock his daughter's mother and aunts before ambling off. Stephanie remembers her Aunt Debbie bursting forth in anger and grief, shrieking at Donna, he did something to her. And Stephanie knew in that moment, in her five-year-old mind, that things would never be the same again. Doreen's Uncle Joe, who was just graduating from high school, called Mark from Florida. So you called Mark back in the day? Yeah, when I was about to graduate high school. And I don't even remember the phone call that much. I remember it a little bit. Like, I just said, where the fuck is my niece? What the fuck is up? They were right when she was gone. I had got his phone number from someone. And I, I, I just said it really mean. Like, where the fuck is my niece? And I kind of even threatened him. Like, oh, we're going to get you. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Yeah, I remember trying to scare him. 
to no avail, of course. Do you remember anything he said to you at all? I think he hung up on me. Or it was like, who the fuck is this? Why is he calling me, kind of thing? I think he even told the cops that I called him. Oh my God, what? Like, it was when the cops were questioning him. He told the Wallingford cops that you had called him? Uh, he either told the Wallingford, I don't know, I think he told, I think the cops knew that I called him and kind of threatened him. Although he appeared calm, cool, and collected around Donna and her siblings, that didn't mean Mark wasn't worried. He would later tell the police that a bomb had gone off in his whirlwind front yard and that he'd had to force Sharon to buy him a gun to be able to protect his family. More than 33 years later, Debbie's still trying to get an answer from Mark, but he just wants to play games. There, there was just so much from the beginning, and, and you know, he still acts like it's, it's not a big deal, you know, like he's got nothing to do with it. And I don't know, I just see him never... I don't know. If, if you were concerned, you would overlook being accused. You still do anything you can to help. Right. And you don't. You still have, you know, you don't even, don't even look back at the police to find out where, where it's at or what's going on. You've never put any effort into it. If I was a suspect in something that had nothing to do with, and obviously I was, they thought I did it at one point, it didn't matter. I still pursue it. Right. Because I need to know the truth even though you think I did it. But I'm, I'm an honest person, so I'm going to fall out there. But if I was the father, I would most definitely be, be willing to do anything to help the police, and mm-hmm. I just don't see that. From the beginning all the way up till now. Mm-hmm. But I don't see the police pursuing him either. So well. that's a big part of the problem. And it has been since day one. You could easily say you suspect somebody, but you have to prove it, Gus. You know, you can't just say that. Well, and you have to do the work. You have, you have to prove it. To yeah. the ball. And and he sort of capitalized on that because if you were a father or a mother, you would pursue it, whether the police did or not. You, you, I mean, you would at least try to make them. And a man's voice in this world is much stronger than a woman's still to this day. Right, right. You, you, you go to a police and say, look, you know, I, you need to look for her. But he never did. Not once. His father does too. Oh, I'm not going to talk to you about this anymore. Um, I'm not going to try to convince you. Mark, <laughs> you don't have to convince me because I already know. I already know that I know the end result, and I know you had something to do with it. So you can talk riddles around it. Your actions tell me that you did it. And the reason you don't want to talk to me anymore is because I'm pressuring you to help the police. And you're saying, I'm not doing it. Right. And a father that, you know, cared about his daughter in any way, and I'm not talking about 30 years later. I'm talking about from the very first day, too, Jeff. You lied. You lied. You said she ran away. You, like you said, you, you set the stage. You set the stage as to what you wanted it to be. And you already had it covered up because you had plenty of time to do that. So there is no witnesses because who's going to take a three-year-old witness to statement anyway? Right. Sharon wasn't home. There's a little bit of evidence, but it's everything that you said that was missing or that she took was right there in the room. 
we found everything you said later, except for the purple Reebok sneakers, so, you know. There's no sneakers? Away, you know, you, you, you had your wife so bamboozled, whatever, that you, you didn't even, um, you know, you, she was at church. And uh, if she didn't give down directions, I told you she would have never found her way. So, so you even had that covered. You, you had her controlled. Everything's about, like, controlling people in your whole life. That's what it seems like. Yeah, including Pastor Rick. You couldn't get him on the phone. I'm not like Mark. If I thought it would make a difference, I'd say, yeah. But he, to me, like, even if it would make a difference, he wouldn't do it because I think that he might know something more than, obviously... You know, like, like I said, you would talk to the cops if it was your daughter. Anybody would, not this guy. Right. But he won't put anything aside to, to find his daughter, which definitely makes you not only look guilty, it makes it look like you did it. That's what it looks like. And he's like, well, I'm not trying to prove to you whether, you know, what, what it looks like. In other words, I don't care. I'm not going to try to prove anything to you. And I said, well, you know, uh, Mark, you don't have to prove anything. This is what you sometime later that summer, or early that fall, that Ranger Paul O'Connell saw Mark in his truck, or at least a man in a truck resembling Mark in his truck, in the Huntington State Forest. Mark swears to this day that it wasn't him, that he can prove he wasn't in the woods that night. What was I carrying, he asked my husband Joe over text. A body or a picnic basket? Intently trying to wring meaning out of each one of Mark's words, it struck me that he was placing himself in the woods that night. I was there, he was telling us, but he knew we didn't know enough to put the screws to him. We couldn't prove he had a body, he was saying, and how did we know he didn't have a basket? I picture Mark the way O'Connell saw him, arms outstretched as he lifted something from the bed of his truck, and all of a sudden, I think about the hampers. The first night I met Donna and her sisters, they told me all about Lori's longtime friend, soul singer Georgia Lewis, and the work Mark would do for her. One time, she'd paid him $100 for a hamper. This seemed a bit overwrought to me. Well, they knew Doreen, too. Georgia knew Doreen. And we, we knew Georgia a little bit because um, we used to go fishing over by Sunset Hill Park, you know, here and there. We, we knew her a little bit. Not a lot. He worked for her a long time, though. He did a lot of stuff. I was thinking about that $100 hamper and stuff. That just oh, yeah. seems had weird. Dad. He had money. I know, Work but... had money, and so did Cal. They, they, they both had But money. you don't... I don't care how much money you have. That doesn't mean you pay $100 for a hamper. Well, he would hand-build it. Like, uh, he would, oh. he would be, uh, um... Uh, he was a He was a carpenter. And it, it was a, a lasting, lifelong hamper that she would have had. Anyway, I couldn't stop thinking about Mark's hampers, no matter how hard I tried to drive the sudden preoccupation out of my mind. 
like Doreen's Comforter, like Mark's Truck, like George Farnham's Workshop up on Whirlwind Hill. Any hampers Mark had were gone with time, not there for me to knock on and open and inspect. But like Rhonda Byrne says in her famous self-help book, you become what you think about most, but you also attract what you think about most. I've never been a follower of The Secret, but guys, I was so invested in this hamper that I think I willed one into existence. It turns out one of Mark's old masterworks had been sitting untouched for decades in a house whose door he will never again darken. The house was being purged to make room for a new family. And at first, the hamper seemed like so many other pieces of trash. It was about to meet the business end of a sledgehammer when something called out to the person wielding that sledgehammer. Stop, the voice said. Put the hamper aside. Someone might want it. And want it, I did. It felt like something an insane, obsessed person might want, but I wasn't going to let labels get in my way. I told Joe about it with a nervous laugh. They offered it to me, I told him. Is that weird? You're going to get it, right? He asked me. Of course, I said. There really was no other way. When I picked the hamper up at one of those Connecticut parking rides, the person handing it over and I shared our own nervous laugh. What are you going to do with this? They asked me. And I shrugged. Nothing weird, I said. I just want to be near it somehow. The hamper itself is 33 by 23 by 14, made of dark, solid, lacquered wood with a heavy hinge lid and special metal handles that Mark used for all of his carpentry back then. The back of the hamper is ventilated with slats to let air in. I brought it home and I set it up on my back porch. I decorated it with candles that I burn when I'm writing, when I'm brooding on this case. Some people might think that's strange and unusual, but like Lydia Dietz in Beetlejuice, I myself am strange and unusual. Meanwhile, back in 1988, Frank IML, Mark's boss and owner of Frank's Paint, had sold him a small car on credit. Red or blue, I can't recall, but the monthly payment was supposed to come out of Mark's wages. Frank, however, had fired Mark around the time Doreen went missing, for infractions having nothing to do with her, but rather Mark's angry outbursts and penchant for borrowing money from co-workers that he didn't pay back. So now Mark had no wages to collect, but that didn't mean, of course, that he didn't keep the car. Frank tried for months to track Mark down, traveling everywhere he went with a key in his pocket, and even stopped by the Sunset Hill Roadhouse in Bethel to try to appeal to the good graces of Mark's parents. Sitting with Lori and George in their living room, Frank begged for them to appeal to their son to do the right thing. George Vincent couldn't help but laugh. Be glad you got some money out of him, George told Frank. It was around November of that year that Mark left, to go where the wind took him, including to California, to see his brother Brad. Landlord Jimmy Farnham's wife at the time, Laura West, remembers those fraught days when Mark abandoned not only his wife, but also little Sarah and Paul. What am I supposed to do, Sharon asked Mark, according to Laura. Go on state, was Mark's solution. Laura also remembered when I pressed her that George Farnham's workshop, the one Mark had said he was in when Doreen ran away, had been torn down and salvaged that October, about four months after Doreen disappeared. When I asked Laura why, she couldn't really verbalize it. It just wasn't something she said that anyone would have wanted on their property. 
It was at this point that the Wallingford police lost track of Mark for about a year, until July of 89. In an article years later, Anthony DeMeo, now deputy chief of the Wallingford Police Department, put it like this, Mark didn't give us a forwarding address. According to Mark, this is a persistent police falsehood. I didn't hide. I lived and worked in Wallingford, he told a journalist. I noticed them noticing me. But that's simply not the case, as Mark had appeared without warning in his brother's California driveway around November 1988. It wasn't long, only a matter of days, before Brad had enough of his brother's usual bullshit and kicked him out. Where Mark was from then until he returned to Connecticut on the Greyhound bus, back into the arms of one Teresa Lyon, I don't know. And she didn't remember how they arranged for her to pick him up. Number Jess, I can't, I can't recall how. I can't, I, you know, I could boggle my brain on that, but I can't, because we only had 411. You know what I mean? We didn't have... Here's something boggling me. Why would he come back? Why would he come back to Connecticut? How long was he out there? From November 88 till when you picked him up. And what is that, June? June of 89. I thought he was only out there for a couple of weeks. I think that's what he told me. He was out visiting on vacation. So <laughs> was he running from what? Well, he showed up at his brother's house. No announcement, no explanation. He just drove a car out there, and he showed up in his brother's driveway one day. Wow. Yeah. I see uh, where Paul gets it from. <laughs> oh, is that right? Never mind. <laughs> okay, I'm going to laugh this off, okay? I'm sorry. That's how I get through this shit. But what I can tell you is, not that I didn't believe you before, but I've got the person on the other side of California telling me he was out in California till he came back to you. I told you he was out there. I told you that's how I got his number. I picked him up at the Greyhound bus station. I remember that night like it happened last night. Yep. And the reason why I remember it so well is because I had my Crown Vic, and it was a warm, humid night, and I had my AC on and the windows down, which condensed the moisture somehow, which made the smoke come out of my AC vents. And I remember when I picked him up at the bus station, he was freaking out about that shit hitting his face. (laughs) This image reminded me of something, something the Teen Challenge sources had been telling me for weeks. Mark is obsessed with conspiracy theories, they told me. Beyond the government and its pedo rings, Mark could talk to you for days about things like chemtrails and sulfur poisoning. You name it, he's afraid of it, they said. Anyway, just like back in 1978, Mark and Teresa didn't last long after being reunited, somehow lacking not only his Chevy truck, but also Frank IML's little car and the boat of an auto he'd driven to California. Mark was always borrowing Teresa's beloved Crown Vic. Once he insisted on taking the car and her metal detector out for what she thought would be a day with him, his kids, and her daughter, he ditched her last minute, taking the detector with him. When he returned the car, Mark was proud to show Teresa he detailed the whole thing, including the trunk. The metal detector, he said, was a piece of shit. He'd also make comments about Teresa's body, insisting that she do sit-ups and complaining about what he said was her poor feminine hygiene. She says, you need to go see a gynecologist. I said, I got my gynecologist. I have my doctor, blah, blah, blah. No, you need to see a female gynecologist. I said, for what? He goes, you got some feminine issues. I'm like, okay, really? He says, yeah. So he made me look in a phone book back in the time I could say they made me, but they can do it now. Well, I went and I made, a, I made an appointment with a female gyno. 
And she says, okay, you had a pap smear six months ago. What are you doing here instead of at your... And I told her the truth. She says, you tell that guy, because he brought me there. He waited in the car. She says, you tell your boyfriend that you're fine. You're beyond fine. She said, he needs a good psychiatrist. She says, and she just shook her head like she's not even going to say anymore. No, that, that was all bullshit. That was his stories. That was his way of manipulating me. But just like always, Mark wasn't satisfied with the company of just one woman also moving in with Wallingford resident Roseanne Poloni that summer of 1989. He enjoyed Roseanne's company until July of that year, when he suddenly decided that what she was wearing was too whorish, and that the solution was burning said clothes in a fire pit. No one remembers exactly who called 911, but most people think it was Roseanne's son, Kurt, who died in 2011. And just like that, after over six months on the run, Mark Hunter Vincent stumbled forward into the arms of a clueless Wallingford PD. They asked him in for questioning. Roseanne was more than happy to see him gone. She died in 2014, but her brother remembered helping Mark move his things out of his sister's condo. Mark was very handsome, the brother remembered, but he was also very short-tempered. Ornery was the word he used. Anyway, Mark had to find a new place to live. Here's Debbie. I think he used women, I really do. Well, if you ever noticed, not one of those, I mean, all of those, he moved in with all of those women. He never invited anybody to move in with him. If you think about it. Yeah. And from, like, and I don't know him, like, 100%, but I've known him since he was about 18. The only time he, he ever was with a woman who he had to provide for her like Donna, later maybe Sharon. They got their own place together once they got married. Mm. That's about it. Everybody else seemed like he'd been with them. Always on a free ride, it seems like. Mark wasn't arrested for the incident with Roseanne, but the police did use their newfound leverage to get Mark to agree to chat in July 1989. I only have two pages of that statement because the police refused to give me the rest. When asked why he made himself scarce for all those months, especially when his daughter was missing, Mark said he hadn't wanted Sharon calling him. He called Sarah and Paul the ones who didn't run away and told the cops this, I care about one thing. I care about my daughter. And yeah, I'm afraid to see her. Because of the stories, month after month after month, period. I'm afraid to see her. That's right, I'm hard. I'm hardened right now. I'm very, very hardened. I miss my daughter. I care about her, yes. And I'm afraid to see her at the same time. I have a conscience, okay? But I have to overlook all the hell that I've heard and seen and been through and all of that over her. I have to, because I still have to work. You understand that? Mark was casual, too, and questioned about the gun he'd made Sharon buy for him at the Silver City gun shop in Meriden that July of 88 a month after Doreen had gone missing. According to Sharon, she tried to return it, but when Mark found out, he grew angry and made Sharon go and get it back. Mark told the cops that a gun was going to do what a gun was going to do, and argued with them over whether he was allowed to have the gun in the first place as a convicted felon. It was now a year later, so where was the gun? The police thought they knew, and they put together a search warrant for Lori's house in Bethel. When they showed up, Mark wasn't there, but in a matter of minutes, he pulled up like he always does, swerving fast into the driveway like a bat out of hell. 
I'm not sure now whether he was driving the truck that had been seen in the park or some other car. I know from Teresa Lyon, with whom Mark had been bedding down when he wasn't with Roseanne, that Mark somehow made or received a call from one of his sisters while he was with Teresa. The sister was yelling that the police were tossing the house and that Mark better get his ass home. But despite the verbal beating he'd just taken from his sister while his mother piled on in the background, and despite the very macho way in which he'd just announced himself, Mark was as cool as a cucumber. Climbing out of his car, he strode to the garage where the search was already underway, telling detectives he needed oil. As Mark entered the garage, he quickly turned and watched a detective pull a small paper bag from between two wall studs. You're not taking my gun, Mark said. Private investigator Kingsley, who knew Mark from back in the day, who Mark tried to fight on the street, was there now, hired by Doreen's family for one dollar. This is your gun? Kingsley asked to clarify. It's mine, Mark said. Good job, asshole, Kingsley told him. You just bought yourself a conviction. Mark headed into the house where the police were keeping his mother in her living room. I can't help but think of the scene of Frank IML begging Mark's parents for his car in that same room, Lori forever destined to pick up the pieces of Mark's mistakes. Mark himself was unfazed, even peaceful. Recently, I've seen Zen Mark, too, in screenshots of his texts from multiple people at Teen Challenge. The screens are always replete with smiley faces, upside-down smiley faces, faces laughing so hard they're crying, and peace, the word peace, ending each of Mark's missives. Good morning, smiley face emoji, peace. Mark discusses business, then writes, peace. Hey, upside-down smiley face. Okay, thanks. Peace. You would think a man like Mark Vincent has more to be worried about, but he never was or is. There's always someone to take the fall, to take the blame. When they seized Mark's revolver, the police also found two long guns, like rifles or shotguns, and one was loaded. They didn't take them because Lori told them they were hers. I thought that perhaps the guns had also been Mark's, that Lori had once again fallen on the sword for her son but the family tells me there were usually rifles in the house. As for the search of Mark's truck, it turned up a top like a 12-year-old girl would wear, but Mark has insisted to us that it was a rag he used in his carpentry work. Apparently it had blood on it, too, and although the police file I have indicates nothing about blood, Mark insists it was his own. Later, in court and at his appeal after his conviction, his lawyer would say Mark yelled something about the gun not being on the search warrant. And as soon as he had arrived at his childhood home on Sunset Hill Road, Mark was leaving. He called over his shoulder to Lori to not let them take the revolver, that it was his, that the police were making a big deal out of nothing. But it was a big deal. On January 17, 1990, a Bethel detective named R.A. Cedargren applied for a warrant to arrest Mark for criminal use of a revolver. Cedargren made note on Mark's multiple felony convictions, rendering him unable to have the gun. Those were second-degree burglary on February 6, 1974, two counts of second-degree larceny two weeks later on February 20th of 74, third-degree burglary on July 11, 1980, and second-degree larceny and third-degree burglary on August 31, 1984, just two months after he'd married Sharon. There was, however, one complication. Once again, the police didn't know where Mark was, and they were late on the jump. 
It wasn't until November 3, 1989, almost three months after finding Mark's gun at Lori's, that Tom Hanley of the Wallingford PD sent a letter to Sergeant Cadalis of the Bethel PD. Enclosed is our report, Hanley wrote, detailing the circumstances surrounding Mark's possession of the handgun in the event you decide to do an arrest warrant for him, since the violation occurred in your town. We have the gun here, and we'll transfer it to your department in the event you want to pursue it. For intelligence purposes, Hanley added before signing off, Mark is now residing with a Therese Johnson in Naugatuck. His driver's license is suspended, and he is reported to be carrying a cut-down shotgun with him. Listener, Therese Johnson is not Theresa Lyon. I checked. So Detective Cedagrin applied for and got an arrest warrant in January 1990, but it would not be until March 5, 1990, that the Bethel police were able to track Mark down. On a tip from a confidential informant, they found him in an apartment on Canal Street in Westport, Connecticut, a long Long Island Sound on what they call Connecticut's Gold Coast. I'm still not sure who lived in that apartment, but I do know Mark was released less than three hours later under a $2,000 bond posted by a woman named Joanne King. And then Mark was in the wind again, racking up a failure to appear charge as well. On July 10th, 1991, Detective Cedargren got a tip. Mark was hiding out in a house in Milford owned by the family of one Kathy Androsco, a woman five years Mark's senior. Cedagrin grabbed his partner and a contingent of uniformed officers and headed over to surround the house. This being 1991, Cedagrin called Kathy on his car phone and asked that she send Mark out. Kathy was adamant that Mark was not there and came out of the house to insist in person. An officer not distracted by the scene Kathy was stirring up thought to head to the back door where, surprise, Mark was trying to make his getaway. He was taken into custody and held on a $200,000 bond. Donna and her sisters were in the courtroom for the gun trial every day, as was Sharon, as was Kathy, and a woman named Carol, who stood up to tell the court that Mark was a good man who did work for her. Despite Carol's words, Mark would be convicted and sentenced to four years in prison. I don't have a lot about Mark back in the mid to late 90s after he was released from prison. I think he only served about two years. I know that he and Sharon eventually divorced and that he married Kathy Androsco, who gave birth to their son David around 1994. Mark continued to scuffle with the law and with his family. His father, George, died on October 6, 1998, and the grief was palpable. Our father was such a kind, loving man, full of passion about people, a family member wrote me. He was anti-society a lot of the time because he was very aware of all the bullshit, but he was brilliant, and he cared so much about the suffering in the rest of the world. He genuinely cared about people and was giving. You would have loved my dad. I could just see the two of you having awesome conversations. You would have loved my mom, too. Everybody did. Family and friends held a memorial service for George at a pond in Huntington State Park, where they sprinkled his ashes. Mark broke from the group and walked away, to a spot in Huntington that only he knows. I asked Brad about their father's death, and like most conversations I have with people, the subject turned back to Doreen. When your father died, were you there when they spread his ashes? No, 
Nope. I was, uh, I had a conversation with my dad when he was in the hospital right before he died. And I was in California and I told him I was going to get on an airplane to come back. And he said, he said, don't bother. You, you won't get here before I'm dead. They gave him enough morphine to take him out. And probably can't do that these days, but he was in such bad shape. That's what happened. And I, uh, I did not come back for the spreading of the ashes. I'm sorry about your dad. Well, you know what, Jess? It, it happens to all of us, okay? It's just, uh, I'm not as emotional. About, I'm probably seemingly uh, different than other people are about, about that kind of thing. I, I don't really believe in funerals. I don't believe in the closure crap. When you're dead, you're dead. So I, I, I just, maybe the engineer says that. Um, it's just, if somebody tells me that uh, my dad died, he died. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, um, so that, that's why I, I'm kind of questioning this pursuit of Doreen's remains. That, uh, the whole closure thing means I have never understood it. I've never understood funerals. You know, if you love somebody, you don't really have to be there to say goodbye because you really don't. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I, I don't know. I, I just don't see the point in it. My father died in 95 um, when I was 17, and people ask me why I don't go to the gravesite, and I just feel like he's not there. Like he's not there? No, he's not there. Where is he? I don't know. You mean like heaven or just... No, I, he's with me though, right? Are we talking about the physical part? That's what I'm talking about, the physical part. Not not the part you think about, not, you know, not the person. You still have memories. I don't believe you have to go to a funeral to remember the person or dig up the remains to... If you could dig up the remains and there was DNA that would link it to Mark, then I would be all for finding Doreen's remains. But I just don't see the point in it other than that, because there's nothing left. Sticky Beaks, that's it for now. I have to go cry into a pillow or scream into a void. Remember, part three of the tale of Mark Hunter Vincent, entitled The Blood and the Buddha, will be out in one week. But if you want it immediately, or if you just want to support my efforts, please head on over to www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak and pledge $5 a month. Until then, see you next time. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children.